Chapter Eleven of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. There was a pink glow in the sky just at the back of St. Paul's Cathedral when Bliss drove once more up the hill to Covent Garden. He found the place which his trolley had occupied taken, and he had hard work to push his way to the front. One by one, however, he somehow or other managed to deliver his notes and collect his fruits and vegetables. "'Where's old Mott?' the first man asked him. "'Don't know,' Bliss replied. "'I was engaged by Mrs. Mott. I heard that Mr. Mott had gone off.' "'Gone off,' the dealer muttered doubtfully. "'The money's all right, I suppose.' "'I know nothing about that,' Bliss answered. I'm a porter. Well, have a pint, anyhow, the man invited. Bliss followed him into a low, crowded room where men were drinking in the dim light. Fair old Tartar Mott, Bliss's new friend declared. Never was such a chap for spreeing around. Wonder his missus stands it. She's got the brass, too. "'How long have you been at this job, young man?' "'Not very long. This is my first visit here, at any rate.' "'Ought have been here about half hour ago,' his companion remarked, as he set down his tankard, empty. "'There's been a regular game of hide-and-seek, all round the stalls. Some young chap got into trouble at the ball yonder.' "'Was anyone seriously hurt?' Bliss asked. I've taken a bloke to the hospital. Saw him going by the ambulance, the man replied carelessly. Just you tell Mrs. Mott, young man, that I'll be jolly glad of a check on Thursday. Accounts to meet, you know. He slipped a shilling into Bliss's hand and lurched off. Bliss drove back to Poplar. It was now broad daylight and the pavements were crowded with men and women making their silent way to the scene of their daily toil. Bliss was feeling sick and tired. It was all he could do to guide the pony. He looked forward to his return to Cranmo Street and its squalid surroundings with absolute loathing. A subtle wave of memory assailed him. Only a short distance away were his warmed, luxurious rooms, his large, comfortable bed, his servant waiting to prepare his bath, the cheerful crackle of his fire, the delicious smell of hot coffee. He set his teeth hard. For some reason or other, it was one of his weakest moments. The vista of the months before him had never seemed so hopeless. Then, amidst that cloud of memories, he suddenly saw the face of the physician, the cold, contemptuous curl of his lips, the steely, unsympathetic glitter of his eye. He forgot his giddiness and sat more squarely upon his seat. A few minutes later he pulled up at the door of the shop. As he slowly descended, a little stiff from the cold, Mrs. Mott's face appeared from an upstairs window. She was evidently not yet fully attired, 
a fact which seemed to afford her no concern whatever. "'I've had Mrs. Simpson's boy in to clean the shop,' she called out. "'You just leave the cart where it is, take the pony into the stable, and come round to the back door and we'll have some breakfast. We'll unload the stuff later.' Bliss obeyed, and in due course made his way to the back room. Mrs. Mott was already there, wearing a pink flannel dressing-gown tied loosely around her. Her hair was in curl-papers. The rest of her attire was negligible. "'You sit down here and have your bit of breakfast along of me,' she declared cordially. "'They ain't been knocking you about, then?' "'On the contrary,' Bliss replied, his fascinated eyes fixed upon her coiffure. "'One large man who sent his regards to you, and said he would like the cheque next Thursday, uh, stood me a pint of beer and gave me a shilling.' "'You've no call to tell me about the shilling,' she remarked. "'And as for Jim Avery's money, you'll get it all right, and that he knows. You can begin while I run upstairs for a minute.' Bliss found himself eating with an appetite. Presently Mrs. Mott reappeared, the curl-papers had vanished, and a heavy fringe ornamented her forehead. She was almost embarrassed as she sat down. "'Don't often do much prinking before later in the day,' she explained casually. "'But you seem such a particular kind. Have some more bacon, do. It'll be a work to bring all the stuff in. I hope they haven't been passing off any old truck on you.' "'I hope not,' Bliss replied. I did my best to watch everything that was put on. "'They're rare thieves up there,' Mrs. Mott continued, "'want watching all the time. There's no two ways about it. A woman who is left with a nice little business like this needs a smart young man to see that she ain't robbed all the time.' Bliss caught the flash of her bold eyes across the table, and set down his cup hurriedly. "'My, but you are shy,' she declared, moving her chair a little closer to his. "'And what's happened to your coat and hat this morning? I've seen you drive home all shivering.' "'I lost them both up there,' Bliss replied. "'Laid them down for a moment, and when I looked up again, they were gone.' "'You're not fit to be trusted amongst a pack of thieves like that,' Mrs. Moth exclaimed, half angrily, half tenderly. "'What you need, young man, is someone to look after you.' The shop-bell rang. Mrs. Mott rose, grumbling to her feet. "'A thing I can't bear,' she declared, "'is them customers who come and want their green groceries "'afore you've had your breakfast or tidied up. "'Don't you disturb yourself, Mr. Bliss. "'I'll be back in a jiffy.' Bliss hastily swallowed his coffee and stole softly to the back door. Mrs. Mott's shrill voice, however, checked his retreat. "'Here's a gent brought back your overcoat,' she called out. "'Wants a word with you.' Bliss turned towards the shop. He passed Mrs. Mott on her way back to her unfinished business. "'What the likes of him was doing up in Covent Garden, I dunno,' she remarked. "'Looks like a toff.' Bliss passed through into the shop. In the midst of the untidy desolation, a young man was standing who amply justified Mrs. Mott's description. He was holding Bliss's overcoat upon his left arm. 
a motor-car was waiting at the door. "'Is your name Bliss?' he inquired. "'I believe this is your overcoat.' Bliss nodded. "'I hope,' he asked, dropping his voice a little, "'that the lady got home safely.' The young man felt in his waistcoat pocket. He drew out a piece of paper. "'I want you,' he said quietly, "'to just forget that hour altogether, if you will. The young lady's awfully obliged to you in all that. Here's a trifle she sent you.' Bliss threw the coat on a pile of onions, and thrust his hands into his pockets. The boy's tone had been kind, even pleasant, but he had spoken from his world, which was a very exalted one indeed, to a greengrocer's assistant. "'I'm very much obliged,' Bliss replied, "'but I do not require payment.' The young man was for a moment speechless. "'My good fellow!' he exclaimed. "'You had to leave your work for quite some time, and the young lady's most anxious that you should be rewarded. You don't know, perhaps, it's a little matter of fifty pounds.' Bliss, who had given that much as a tip to a favourite maitre d'hôtel before now, remained unmoved. "'It was not a service,' he reiterated quietly, "'for which I require or could accept payment. As a matter of fact, I was there too early for my work, and I was delighted to be of assistance.' The boy thrust the note slowly back into his pocket. He stared at Bliss from head to foot. "'There's no mistake, is there?' he asked. "'Forgive me, but it's a little hard to understand that anyone in your uh, position refusing a fifty-pound note. Perhaps you're afraid,' he went on quickly. Uh, "'You needn't be. There won't be any trouble about that little affair. You're never likely to hear of it again.' "'I'm not afraid of that,' Bliss replied. "'All the same, I require no payment, nor shall I accept any.' I'm glad to hear that the young lady is safely back with her friends. The boy seemed to become suddenly older, and a person of greater understanding. He held out his hand. I still don't understand, he declared frankly, why anyone like you is working as a grocer's porter. Will you let me do something for you? I can find you without doubt a more suitable post. Bliss shook his head. "'Thank you. I'm quite satisfied.' The boy looked around him, still bewildered. "'There must be something,' he began. "'It would afford me some satisfaction,' Bliss said quietly, "'to be assured that the matter in which I intervened was not, uh—' "'I'll tell you all about it,' the boy interrupted. "'I'll tell you about it with pleasure.' "'My sister and I live in Grosvenor Square. She is Lady Margaret Brayton, and I am Geoffrey Brayton. The mater was giving a fancy-dress ball, and we were both bored to death. I wanted to go to a Covent Garden ball, and told Meg so, and she bothered me into taking one of the motors and going there just for an hour. She wanted to see what it was like. It was a mad thing to do, of course. While we were there, three or four men followed Meg about, and— Directly I noticed it, we made up our minds to leave. Just then there was an awful hubbub. Some thief had stolen a bracelet from a woman near. She caught hold of Meg's arm and accused her of having taken it. The bracelet was on the floor, close to where Meg was standing, and it seemed to me that we were in for trouble. 
Two of the men laid hold of Meg. They were going to keep her till a policeman arrived. I knocked one down and tripped the other, and Meg bolted. We both got clear, but she went a different way, and I'd lost her. Thanks to you she got home, or there'd have been a devil of a row, for one of those fellows half recognised her, I'm sure, and they say he's a bit of a blackmailer, a regular wrong'un. I hunted around for Meg for over an hour, but I had to be jolly careful myself, for the man I knocked down caught his head upon the railing and had to be taken to the hospital. Then I telephoned home to one of the servants I could trust, and found that Meg had been home for some time and gone to bed. So I followed. That's the story. I saw her when I got home, and she told me what you'd done for her. We'll both be thankful to you all our lives, Mr. Bliss. That's all right, Bliss replied. You won't mind if I say good-bye now, will you? I've got a lot of work to do, and my mistress is a little impatient. It's all silly rot, Lord Geoffrey declared. You've got to come along and let us help you out of this. I can get you a job down on our Wiltshire estate, or— Bliss shook his head gently and pushed him towards the door. I'll see you again some day, he promised. I'll know where to come if I need a leg up. Good-bye. And a nice long time the young man was, too, leaving your coat, Mrs. Mott grumbled as Bliss stepped back into the sitting-room. There's everything cold here, but I've warmed up this last bit of bacon. Thank you. I've had plenty, Bliss assured her. You'll just sit where you are, Mrs. Mott insisted, and you'll eat that bit of bacon, thrusting it upon his plate, and drink this cup of coffee. Then you and I together will see about bringing the stuff in the shop, and I'll show you how to do the sorting. I don't see, she went on, dropping an extra knob of sugar into his cup, why we shouldn't get one of them louts, as are always hanging round, to do the rough work outside, and you might help me more in the shop. It's not a bad little business, you know, Mr. Bliss, properly looked after, she continued, dropping her voice a little and it don't mean late hours, neither. We can generally be finished in time for a bit of supper at seven o'clock, and I feel one's earned a bit, too, to spend. I'm all for a bit of enjoyment after a day's work's done, she confided, and to tell you the truth, I feel a lot more like it now I've got rid of that man of mine. Always half drunk he was, she went on and if any woman came along and smiled at him, even though she was ugly as a barn door, just so long as it wasn't his own wife, he'd make a perfect fool of himself about her. A good riddance, I say, she concluded firmly, and if I takes a fancy, oh, drat that shop bell. This time, however, there was no need for her to disturb herself. They heard the sound of heavy footsteps crossing the shop, and the communicating door was suddenly opened. Mrs. Mott sank back in her chair. A blank expression spread itself over her face. A heavy, sheepish-looking man stood in the doorway with a straw in his mouth, and a half-awakened expression in his eyes. He looked from his wife to Bliss. "'Who's this?' 
he demanded truculently, indicating the latter with a movement of his head. Mrs. Mott rose to her feet. "'And where have you been, if you please, sir?' she inquired, with ominous civility. "'I've had a few days holiday,' Mr. Mott replied, loosening his neckcloth a little. "'And if anyone says I haven't the right to a few days holiday, then let em come outside and settle it with me.' "'Holiday, you lout!' Mrs. Mott cried, shaking with anger. "'You can just take yourself off, holiday-making. This is my shop and my business, and I don't want no more of you. I'm off for good, was your last words, and I'll trouble you to act up to em. Mr. Mott scratched his chin for a moment, and gazed towards Bliss. "'Fried bacon for breakfast,' he murmured. "'Hot coffee, and in the sitting-room and all, cold bacon and a glass of water out in the stable was enough for the last boy.' "'You hold your tongue, man,' Mrs. Mott declared, breathing heavily. "'If once I starts on you, you can save your breath.' Mr. Mott interrupted. "'I'm back here, and I'm going to stay, even if it is your bit of money as runs the business, and even if you does most of the work. The laws of this country recognise that it's the man that's master, so let's hear no more of your rubbish. And as to that young man,' he went on slowly, "'him and me will have a little chat.' Mrs. Mott stepped between them. Her suppressed wrath broke bounds at last. With her arms akimbo, and her feet firmly planted upon the ground, she commenced to justify, actually and magnificently, her reputation. Mr. Mott, dazed by the flow of words, remained doggedly still. Bliss slipped quietly out by the back door. In the yard, and even in the stable where he collected his few belongings, he could still hear the voice of his late employer ever rising in a shriller and more triumphant crescendo. But when at last she emerged, flushed with the joy of a transient victory, and looked around for bliss, he had disappeared. With his little bundle under his arm, fortified by a very good breakfast, with very little money indeed in his pocket, but filled with a vague sense of relief, he was trudging cheerfully along towards the nearest Labour Bureau. End of chapter 11